Amen. Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord and those of you joining us online. Good morning to you also. We are in the book of Acts this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to chapter 10. We will stand in a moment and take verses 24 through 43. Should take three minutes to stand and read that section. Please stand for the reading of God's word, beginning at verse 24. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality but In every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are his witnesses of these things, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him, after he arose from the dead, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to judge the living and the dead, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Please be seated. All right, a little bit more than three minutes. Learning to Unlearn, that's the title of this morning's message. This Gentile household led by Cornelius, as well as the Jewish witnesses 
that accompanied Peter and Peter himself, they all had to learn about new wine being poured out by the Lord. Both had to unlearn some things about God that held them back from learning greater things about God. We're, we're no different. When I came to Christ, I had to unlearn things. Some of it was instant, not everything. I'm still learning, of course. Less unlearning, it feels like, and more learning, though. But this was at the beginning of something major, very special taking place. I want to stress what is stressed in this section of Scripture, uh, other places too, but especially here, as the, the God's mercy, God's care, God's timing is going out of his way for us, for sinners. His undeserved kindness made available to people who fail him, to people who fail themselves, to everyone. God is making himself available to the house of Cornelius in this section of Scripture. But God is also making himself available to everyone and has been doing it. And those who the word of God cannot reach, God will do right. You know, there are people now in Yemen, for example, have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. May not have even heard his name. God knows what to do with them. We are concerned with the field of ministry that we have been given, assigned by God. That lot, our personal tribal lot, the field that we have to work. And to do this effectively, we have to learn all the time, and we have to relearn. And then there's the unlearning also. In verse 24, we again look at that verse, and fo the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Now I'm taking for granted that you know what happened leading up to this point in the first 23 verses. And if not, well, then you've got a homework assignment to do, and, and hopefully it will still be meaningful to you. This man Cornelius rallied as many people as he could in anticipation of of Peter's arrival. Friends and family and fellow soldiers were all here in his house. About a 32-mile trip from Joppa to Caesarea. This is Caesarea Maritima by the sea. And in verse 25, as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Well, Cornelius, you've got to learn something here. But first, you've got to unlearn something here, and that's why the title of the message this morning is learning to unlearn. Peter is leading the first major Christian transition. Paul will later codify it. He will, give, he will outline it for us. He will give us the precepts that belong to our faith. The others will also, but Paul will really lead it in the transition from Judaism to Christianity as far as setting out um, a, a doctrine for us to follow. And that means that from the Jew to the Gentile, from the law to grace, from Israel to the church, this is the transition that is taking place. Not replacing the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is not replaced. It's there when Christ returns. And it will continue into the millennial reign. But the church will assume the role of telling the world about God. 
And that church is made up of people who used to be Gentiles and used to be Jewish, but they now are Christians. And the world may not have that classification. Well, that's the world. Uh, that's not the scripture. That's not God. There's no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, Scythian or barbarian, all in Christ. And Cornelius, he has this great appetite for God. That's how Peter gets there. However, Peter also has a great appetite for God. And being zealous for the Lord, Cornelius, he does what is wrong. He makes a mistake. Well, an error. Peter will not excuse it. This is misguided worship. He'll have to learn that you don't, we, we don't worship created beings. Worshiping anything created is forbidden by the Creator. Paul gets into that also, and he gets into his first, uh, what we know is the first chapter of his Roman letter. But being zealous for God does not excuse misguided worship. And again, Cornelius is very much zealous for God. But what he did here is misguided, and it is not to be received. But even John, the beloved apostle, who knew better, who knew that this is not what we do. We do not worship created beings. We do not fall down before them like this. Even he lost sight of this later in life. It's probably in his 90s when it takes place, and he does it twice. He was overwhelmed by his spiritual experience when he received the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, verse 10. And I fell at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, see that you don't do that. I am your fellow servant and your, of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the angel that has been assigned to guide th John through the revelation of Christ says, hey, stop doing it. You get me in trouble. <laughs> we don't do that. John, again, overwhelmed by the whole experience, and who can fault him? Revelation 22, Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down and worshipped before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then he said to me, See that you do not do that. And he doesn't add, I told you not to, see, not to do that. And then he says, For I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, Worship God. And so here's Cornelius making this mistake. Misguided was John in his adoration, and yet it was not excused. It was not, well, I understand, you know, you're just so caught up in the spirit that sinning is okay. No, that is certainly not what happened. The angel corrected the beloved apostle without condemning him, without belittling him as Peter does with Cornelius. So it is a very big thing. Incidentally, this Greek word for worshiping someone uh, in the New Testament is only directed towards Jesus without objection. Now, Paul and Barnabas will face the same thing, and they will say, hey, we have a nature just like yours. Don't worship us. We're like you. And that comes in chapter 14. And so my point is, when you read in the Gospels that they fell and they worshiped Jesus, he receives the worship because he is worthy of the worship because he is God the Son. And uh, others, of course, when they're worshipped, 
in the New Testament. Don't do that. Uh, I am not worthy. I am a created being as you are. This would refute uh, the Roman, uh, not the Roman, the Jehovah's Witnesses teaching that Christ was not divine. He's every bit of a part of the Godhead. He is every bit divine. Verse 26, but Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I myself am also a man. Well, again, uh, it's well before I get to that. Peter does not hold out his ring for Cornelius to kiss. <laughs> we should point that out. It's very important because we go by what the Bible says, not what people make up. Peter refused to be considered con- refused to be considered superior to another human being. I'm, I'm no different from you. We may have different tastes in things, uh, different things about us, but in essence, I am just like you. And Cornelius had to learn. He had to unlearn things that he had been exposed to that were unacceptable to God. At one point in his life, before Christ enters in, he it was fine with Worshipping things that were created came out of the the kingdom of paganism. And he is is getting an education at this point. God's kingdom is unlike any other. And so, yeah, Peter doesn't give him a pass. He corrects it right away. And very important, what would have happened if Peter just received it? Well, a lot would have went wrong. But even Cornelius, once it was, he would have found out, let's say, years later, he would have said, why didn't that apostle tell me this was wrong? And he would have been correct. But Peter, of course, did the right thing and addressed it uh, immediately in verse 27. Uh, Let me pause here. Do people still worship created things? Absolutely. We have people who worship movie stars, sports stars, rock stars, and the stars themselves. The creature worshiping the created rather than the creator. And you can't do them both at the same time. You can't say, well, I I, I worship the stars, but I also worship Yahweh. Well, the Jews were doing that. And uh, the prophet um, Malachi uh, called them out on it. Well, uh, and other prophets did too. I I should add that. Uh, Much of their ministry was, was trying to halt the progression of false and misguided worship. And it had entrenched itself in the Jewish people. Verse 27, And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. (laughs) Stepping into this Gentile house was probably more of an amazing step for Peter than when he stepped out on the sea to walk on the water. This was a big deal. Wisely, Peter brought with him Jewish believers from the church in Joppa. So they're witnessing this. They're going to have to unlearn things also. Luke chapter 5, verse 38. New wine, Jesus said, must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. Flexible. As Christians, we are supposed to be flexible. We're not called upon to be contortionists. But we are called upon to be flexible, to give a little bit where it is necessary and wise and where the scripture permits us. There's no flexibility with false worship, with misguided worship. We don't let someone fall down and out as Cornelius did with Peter and say, I'm just being flexible, let him do it. Then that was too big of a deal. Verse 28, and then he said to them, 
Peter speaking, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. You see the benefit of going verse by verse. We just cover things that we otherwise would miss. Um, Here, you know, calling the unclean animals, the common animals. God has said, no, we we don't call people those things, unless you're driving. There is no specific Old Testament law that forbade this kind of interaction with non-Jewish people. Yes, the Jews were not to uh, eat, follow their diet, and get too close to the people. But they could go in someone's house. There's no law that says, don't go into a Gentile's house. Jesus remained for two days in Samaria. Where did he stay? There's not like a hotel holiday in there, and he just checks in, and I can't stay at the Gentile's. You say, maybe he slept out under the stars. Yeah, well, where did he take his meals? Why was he there? He was mingling with the people. The rabbis had injected extreme views into Judaism, into what God was teaching. They took everything to the wrong level. Jesus points that out. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Those were their rabbis. For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. When he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Oh, man. Jesus said that. If I said that, you'd be, I don't know, who do you think you are? <laughs> well, I'm quoting the Lord, and that's who I know I are. Uh, so uh, it's just amazing. Peter will bring it up because this is not going to set well with the Jewish Christians. Understandably, it is not mocking them. Or picking on them. This was a difficult transition. That's why it was major. One reason why it was major. Peter's going to have to defend all of this. And later on another issue. When Judaistic Christians went up to Antioch. And they tried to get the Christians to follow you know, Judaism. Dietary laws, circumcision, stuff, and stuff like that. Paul, Paul went ballistic. Him and Barnabas. And they said, well fine, we'll take it to Jerusalem. And they go to Jerusalem there and they have the council. And Peter stands up in defense of Christians, of, of, of being converted to Christianity without having to become Jewish. And it's not anti-Semitic at all. Acts chapter 15, verse 10. This is what Peter says. And he's pointing to how the rabbis injected these laws on the people that God never put on them. We have to watch doing the same thing as Christians because there are Christians that will come and tell you things that the Bible does not tell you to do. And they'll speak it as though it's a commandment of God. You're sinning if you don't do this and you don't do that. You don't wear, you know, wooden skirts or something. <laughs> so Peter says, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He's saying the rabbis, they just loaded us up with rules that who could follow them? And so when he says, you know, it's unlawful for me to come in your house. It's like, uh, it's not like it is this fact. It was never prohibited in the first place. But he still has to overcome this. He's been raised this way as a Jewish man. 
But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. May God show us too. So God overruled these teachings that were wrong. And it it took miracles. It took dreams and visions to, to get this rolling. Now we have the scripture. Now it's codified for us. We don't need a vision to understand so much of our Christian faith. Verse 29 Therefore, I came without objection. As soon as I was sent for, I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? Well, fair enough. Why am I here? And uh, Peter says that it is because God prepared him. God, I'm here because of God. I'm not here because I felt sorry for you. I'm not here because I always wanted to see Caesarea. I'm here because God sent me. And I fear, you know, many times Christians go on mission trips because they just want to see the place. I'm going on a mission trip to Naples. Or I'm going on a mission trip to Maui. Uh, Fine, if God's sending you there. But if it's like exciting, uh, maybe maybe you shouldn't be going. Well, I don't want to judge because I know I've hit 20 or 30 people. Uh, At some point, somewhere, you're going to get it. But tell God, not me. Uh, I said, but you said it. I'm going to tell you. Uh, moving back to this, Peter came without objection once he knew it was the Lord. Once he had that green light from God, he was off with his assignment. Verse 30, so Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. I have to pause there because it's a little confusing, verse 30. It reads as though he's still fasting, and I don't believe that is the meaning. He, was, he didn't give a time. He said, I was fasting to whatever hour it was until the ninth hour. That, that is how he is saying it. So, so Cornelius, verse 30, said four days ago, I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. So he's recount, recounting to Peter the vision that he had that started in verse 1 of this chapter. Verse 31, he continues, And he said, Cornelius, this is what the man in the bright clothing said to him, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. I have thought about this prayer so many times, this this moment, from verse 1 and here again. Many times in my Christian walk, when is God going to answer my prayer? When am I going to have that Cornelius moment? Rick, I've heard your prayer. No. (laughs) I don't want to hear that. I want to hear it granted. It has been granted unto you. But I will add, there are many prayers that I have not made that God has answered, if I can say it that way. In other words, he has given me things that I have not even asked for. And they're big things. Where would I be without them? He's brought people into this ministry that I never asked for. And I'll let you know who you are after service. (laughs) I mean, it's blessings. Just blessings. Uh, So it it, it causes one to meditate on these things. To give yourself to them. To ponder them. To try to get them to influence how you're going to serve the Lord better. I don't know about you. I'm always trying to serve better. I like to think all Christians are trying to do better. We meet with much resistance. We have to learn how to keep going nonetheless. I'm not getting better at this. Well, what is your alternative? Quit? 
or keep going? Well, we have a single word for that. It's called persevere. You say, but it hurts so much. We have a word for that too. Endure. Endure means take the pain. Take it. Sometimes you just don't have a choice. I'm just being real with you because in all of this reality is God. The one who took the pain for us. Not only on the cross, but in other ways. You can bet his heart broke over many things that he had to deal with in his life on earth. Well, coming back to this, verse 31, he, uh, he stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms remembered in the sight of God. Peter talking about abstaining. Because fasting is meant to weaken the flesh. There are types of fasting. Cornelius may have skipped two meals that day and only just had a sundown meal, something like that. Or maybe it's a day where you just abstain from some other uh, pleasure that you, 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 that is harmless in itself, not sinful. But to fast is to abstain. Uh, the flesh will resist this, of course. Peter wrote to the believers, he said, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And yes, Lord, it does. It's nice to have it in print. It's nice to take out the guessing. Well, moving back to this, Cornelius was in a struggle to find truth about God. It's not natural. We don't just, you know, figure out God on our own. It's a spiritual event. And there's nothing natural when it comes to learning about God. It is all spiritual. It comes from his throne. John chapter 4. God is spirit, Jesus said. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Which is why Cornelius got corrected. John chapter 6. This, you know, those who believe in transubstantiation, you say, what is that? I don't know. I can pronounce it. No, I know what it is. To believe that when they have communion, it's, they're actually taking in the blood and the flesh, which is cannibalistic. It is not endorsed in Scripture. When Jesus made this, it was metaphor. He tells us that. In the same section, he says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Otherwise, he would say, hey, take a bite. Go ahead. It's crazy how anybody could come up with some great minds. You men like Martin Luther, you know, they, they would they learn these things and you go, huh? But I'm sure there's something about you that others might say that about. And me too. Anyway. Lessons every believer must learn as we unlearn the natural that resists the spiritual. These are lessons. We have, if nothing else, if you don't agree with much of what a pastor says, hopefully, at the very least, it will cause you to think a little more, a little, reach a little deeper. He's, I don't think uh, pastors come up and say, you must agree with me. Well, I think that. But... No, I don't. <laughs> it is funny. You want people to agree with you, of course. Uh, you, who likes to be questioned when you're in a position of authority? 
nobody. Everybody wants people to say aye aye and be off and running, but that's not a reality. Uh, the reality is that when we come and sit before the Word, we hope that we will be stirred to consider things that we otherwise would have passed by. We're going to come to that in a moment. Verse 32. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. Verse 33. So I sent to you immediately. You have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear the things God commanded by you. There it is. We're here, we are assembled to hear you preach what God has told you. Whether you know it or not, when you come to church, you've come to hear something from God. It could be a repeat of, uh, you know, an echo of something that you've heard somewhere else or whatever. You come to hear from God. When a pastor prepares a sermon, he's trying to hear from God for himself that he can share with you. And thus Paul says, that which I first received, I have given to you. That's the process that we, we submit to. By consent, it is a good process. Uh, the pastor, he, he must know. Uh, even the people may not know these things. But his, his role is to preach what he's been told. Ecclesiastes 5. Now this is what I said we're coming to it. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. And draw near to hear, rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. There's a lot to think about in that. If, uh, again, Ecclesiastes 5.1. should be mandatory reading for churchgoers. At some point in your life, you have to sign, yes, I read. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you enter into any contractual agreement, they have you sign 900 pages uh, well, th there are some Christian verses. Take not an accusation against the elder, an elder on the strength of one witness. How many Christians listen to one person criticize a pastor and say, boy, I didn't know that about him, and I'm out of there. Well, it happens quite a bit. Anyway, um, all of this is happening because of God. Uh, all of this is God's doing. The assembly in the house and the preacher there. The witnesses on both sides. Verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. First words out of his mouth. He goes into the Gentile house. He's, the Jews don't like me coming into your house. I would not have done this had God not worked on me. But I'm here now. Then he comes in and he sees all these people ready for him. And it's got to be like, wow, this is a, 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 a church. His sermon begins with an Old Testament teaching in the light of New Testament fulfillment. You don't just take an Old Testament verse apart from the New Testament. The New Testament stamps its approval on it. Think not that I've come to destroy that. I've not come to destroy the Lord but law, but to fulfill it. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 is what Peter is using as his text. There are several places in the Old Testament that it says this, but I'm going to Deuteronomy. Well, Yahweh, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. And so Peter is saying, in truth, I, I know that God shows no partiality. Probably for the first time in his life, he fully understands this verse 
It's connection to what he is doing and its application. He now understands, before it may have been limited, well, God likes the rich people just as much as the poor people. Now it's Gentiles as much as Jews. It's expanded. And so he says, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, verse 35, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted in him. Well, the Pharisees would be just having a conniption if they heard him say this. No one has favored status with God because of their ethnicity. No one has favored status with God because of their gender or their wealth or their nation or their education or how much hair they have. You should point that out. It's important to me. I would also go on to say that, um, well, I forgot what I was going to go on to say. Let's come back to this. <laughs> so here Peter speaks to all humanity. God is not interested in the things that you might think is important unless he says so. And he is eliminating a lot of stuff here when he says, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness, that one is accepted. Not some credentials, not some country that you're from. Second Corinthians chapter 5, one of the sweetest verses in all the Bible. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became me on the cross. He became you on the cross. He became the sinner on the cross. And that's what this verse is saying. He made him who knew no sin. He was sinless. No one else has this status. That he might become, uh, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so that's why Paul could say, there is now therefore no condemnation upon you. But, how do you look at other people? Maybe you just look down on them because they're not, doing as well as you in school or in life, or maybe they just uh, don't have the upbringing you have. Maybe you just don't care for them. Whatever it is, you better check that snarkiness. It's not acceptable to Christ. If you claim to belong to Christ, then try to belong to Christ. And don't think that you can have these time-out sessions where you can treat people with contempt Because uh, you're a snob. Uh, I'm not saying that you're a snob. But I am saying we're all susceptible to this kind of behavior. And it is not acceptable. Israel gave the world the scriptures and the prophets. God did it through them. Romans 3 verse 2. To them were committed the oracles or the utterances of God. That's where our scripture starts. The Jewish people. And within those utterances, those oracles, we learn the only way to God, the only way to salvation, and the true purpose that belongs to us. Had God chosen a different ethnic group than the Jewish people, they would have given the world the scriptures, and they would be the ones that would be alienated by the rest of the world, because it is spiritual. When Satan found out, you mean this people has been singled out to bring the oracles in the the early stages? Satan has heightened up his attacks on them. And not only for that, but because of the prophecies that 
revolve around Israel, making the Jewish people as a nation God's time clock for eternity. Well, Satan hates that. And so he tries to destroy the Jewish people so that he can prove God is wrong because he is spiritually insane. You cannot be sane, dwell in heaven, see God on the throne, and then think you can overthrow him. Something's got to be wrong with you. Something that can't be fixed. That's how deep it goes. Well, God did choose Jacob, and it is the Jewish people who have brought us the scriptures initially. Uh, here it says, the word which God sent to his children, of uh, the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all, and every knee will bow before him. All means all, every part of it. The problem is, is the unbeliever doesn't believe the scripture. It doesn't have that authority for them. Well, that's where we have to help them. The biggest proof that the, the, the Christian Bible is trustworthy in the face of someone who rejects the authority of the Bible, to me at least, is that how do you account the fact that you are a sinner and you know it? You know you do wrong things. You know you have wrong thoughts. Not because you have been taught this. Because you don't like this happening to you and you do it to others. And you have enough conscience to know that's not right. That is the beginning. But when you come to the scripture, it is going to deal with that part of you. You can fuss about discrepancies and other things. All you want is still going to single you out and you have no defense against it. And there's no other writing on earth like this. So, yeah, those who reject the word of God will be rejected ultimately because they have no excuse. As Paul says, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, if you are pulling these things off before God. And you try to overthink it and hide behind analysis and this and that, and you still can't get away from the guilt because you are a sinner and God has pronounced it. And he has put eternity in your heart. And you can't get away from these things. Revelation 19, 16, speaking of this lordship. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we are going to be there to see that. Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. That are in heaven and that are on earth. Visible and invisible. That would be the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He must be God. He is. Every bit of it. Jesus is God the Son. And when the language shifts, it does to, and, and God did this through Christ, does not eliminate Christ from the Godhead. It includes him. Well, no matter how much I fail, he remains Lord because he says so. Because he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He does not say, I will never leave you nor forsake you unless you mess up. Quite the opposite. Luke chapter 7, verse 47. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. You've got to love that. I get goosebumps thinking about the mercy of God on sinners. How much it, if I can apply some of, you know, anthropomorphically reverse it, my feelings into God's heart, how much it must hurt him to see people thumb their nose at him, to mock and hate his son, 
And most of the time, they don't even know what they're mocking and hating. Verse 37, that the word, uh, that word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Peter knows that they've heard about these things. He knows that Cornelius has had a connection to the Jewish people. And he knows that the story of Christ has circulated in uh, the Jewish community, claiming that Christ, uh, at least this much, that uh, the claims of Christ to be Messiah and the miracles that he performed. Yet gaps remain. Peter is saying, I know you know these things, but you don't know enough. And that's why God has sent me here. John chapter 4, again, Jesus in Samaria at the, with the well, at, with the woman at the well. <laughs> this, is, this is so the Lord. He just right between the eyes. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. That's right, because they have the utterance, the oracles. It was first given to them. They were entrusted with this. The church has assumed this role. The nation of Israel continues to exist and flourish, and it will continue to exist and flourish until Christ returns. Well, uh, it has not always, of course. We know there's this long gap, which is a miracle by itself. No other people in the history of humankind has known to be knocked out of their homeland, retain their identity, their religion, their ethnicity, and then be brought back to their land after 2,000 years. When that has happened to other people, we have much of it documented. The Old Testament is loaded with it. Nebuchadnezzar would go in, for example. Pharaoh would go in, for example. The Seleucids, all those would go take people out of their country and they would be assimilated into the, their conqueror's land. For instance, you won't meet a Philistine. You won't meet an Edomite. You will not meet a Moabite. They have been conquered and assimilated taken out of their land and absorbed, and they're gone. Well, they tried that with Israel and didn't work. The only one. It is a miracle. Uh, I don't know how you can be a Christian and side against Israel. Uh, you, You just have to be crazy. Well, coming back to this, when Jesus said, you worship what you do not know, we know what we worship for salvation of the Jews, instantly he wiped out every other religion on earth with that statement. And the world hates us for it. But they can say whatever they want to say. But we can say, ah, we disagree. <laughs> they don't like that. Well, they're going to have to learn to live with it. Well, here, the knowledge of salvation originally through the Jews, not through the Americans, not through the Arabs, the Africans, the Chinese, or the Europeans, or any other group. It came through the Jewish people. Jesus, he lived as a Jew. And the Christian faith was born out of the Jewish religion. And here we see a Gentile asking a Jew to come help him get to God. This is important because even in Christianity, there have been those who have tried to get rid of Israel, who have been anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitic sounds too nice. The reality is they've hated the Jews. And that is uh, something that should not ever be tolerated. And I'll go on. No Christian should hate those from Burma, from Chile, from Venezuela, from Turkey, from wherever. We're not supposed to hate people. 
You might not like their music or their food or the way they do their hair. You're still called to love them and not hate anyone. Anyway, I know the, the world won't make that easy for you, and Satan knows it. So don't be surprised when you have to fight your way out of that box. Previously, the Jewish Christians, when speaking to Jews, began with Abraham in the New Testament. When we have a sermon from Stephen or from Peter to the Jews, they start, Abraham, our father. Here is Peter preaching to Gentiles. But he doesn't start with Abraham. He goes to John the Baptist. Interesting. Something there to think about. Verse 38. I could say more, but we got to move on. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The apostles never got that nasty taste out of their mouth that Jesus did not deserve to be treated that way. That he was above all people. And they treated him as though he was below all people. And they, every chance they got, they said, he did good. He was blameless. He's going to go on to say, and they killed him. And his Gentile audience, they, as I mentioned, connected to the Jewish community. They understood that word where he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. That word, is the, that's the one. That's the Christ, the Messiah word. Isaiah 11.2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah 42.1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Christ the only one that did that. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The spirit of Adonai Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh is upon me because... Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison doors to those who are bound. When Jesus quotes this in one of his sermons in a synagogue, he stops there and he does not go on to speak about the day of vengeance that then follows in Isaiah 61. Because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, but the vengeance would come later, not at his first coming. The promise of the Spirit upon him was fulfilled. And Peter wants to affirm that. Matthew 3. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. May we never lose the majesty of these words. May we never write them off to, you know, somebody made this up. The men that wrote these things died telling people, I saw him die, I saw him rise again. Men do not die for such fiction. They may die for fiction thinking it's true, but there was no delusion about what they had witnessed. And so verse 39, is what Peter's saying, and we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. All the apostles initially deserted Christ at his arrest. All of them, including John. John and Peter come back. Peter then denies him. But evidently, Peter was at a distance looking at Christ on the cross. Acts chapter 5, Peter says, and we are witnesses to these things, speaking of his sufferings, 
Then there's this verse here. 1 Peter 5, 1, I, Peter writing, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. See, they saw him suffer. They saw him murdered. And then they saw him alive again. He says, whom they killed. I'm not going to get into the finger pointing part. The Bible makes it clear that ultimately we're all guilty. We're all complicit in this. Uh, But they murdered the anointed one. Well, who is the anointed one? It's Christ. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Yeah, we know Mary had to suffer so much slander, people talking about her, hating her. Even when Christ was grown, they said, we know who our father is, trying to say to him, we're not sure about you, that whole virgin birth thing. Mary, she, she, she sacrificed. Um, she was a gallant hero of the scripture. Acts chapter 3. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. I would have added, you fools. <laughs> uh, that's probably why I didn't get to pronounce these things then. Anyway, uh, the Gentiles, these Gentiles listening to this sermon are about to meet this Holy One in the form of the Holy Spirit. Hanging on a tree, he says, a gruesome fact. By using tree instead of the word cross, Peter ties it into the prophecy in Deuteronomy 21. Paul ratifies this in Galatians 3, Christ has been redeemed from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, as Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus satisfied this penalty. We get that in verse 43. This is why Peter is explicit about the tree. Not because it was a tree per se, but it was a stake. It was a cross. And crosses happen to grow on trees. Right, Simon the Cyrenian, he did not carry the tree of Christ. It was the cross. It was taken from wood from a tree. It was made into a stake. But it is linked to Deuteronomy 21, 23, that the one that is hung on the tree is cursed, and Jesus was cursed for us. We already read that. I'm not going to go back. It's a timeless emblem of the price and sacrifice of Christ. Verse 40, and prophecy. Him God raised on the third day and showed him openly. Well, that's a glorious fact. Uh, where it says, him God raised, does not mean, okay, he's not God the Son, because God raised him. That's not what it's saying. God is not saying that we are above Jesus Christ, but he is included in the Godhead And it was very tricky to be able to present the Christ as the Son of God without preaching polytheism at the same time. To bring the Trinity. So Peter will say later, I think next week we'll get to that, where the Lord is magnified. Well, to magnify something does not mean to make it bigger. It means to see it bigger. And 
to get Christ to be seen, to magnify him without preaching polytheism was quite a remarkable challenge satisfied by the apostles. And so when it doesn't, you know, this is why some of it is somewhat veiled in the language because the people would have really struggled with that. We do not worship three different gods. There's one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Well, we'll have to save that for a session on the Trinity. Uh, coming back to this, have to speed it up. Um, we look looking to see what I'm not going to say. Romans 4.25, speaking of Christ, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. He died because we're the sinners, but he separated us from the judgment to come, and that makes us saints, sanctified, separated from judgment. Goats over here, the sheep over there. Verse 41, not all the people, but to witnesses chosen by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Selected believers, not enemies, not yet, saw the risen Christ. Paul will be one, Saul of Tarsus, will see the risen Christ after. Peter affirms what the God said to him about this. Jesus speaking, John 14, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. You will see me because I live, and you will live also. And so when they saw him risen, they knew they're going to live. We're going to live too. We see him alive, resurrected. We're going to be resurrected. It takes away those doubts. And Peter is saying here, he called it. He prophesied of this very thing. And so he affirms it, verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Oh, Mark sixteen fifteen. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. To, um, it says here in verse 42, to testify that it is he who is ordained by God. I covered that in verse 39 with the scripture verses from the Old Testament. To be judge over the living and the dead. This is the divine right of God. God has every right to judge the living and the dead. And the dead aren't non-existent, and nor are they unconscious. They are just not here but they are fully conscious of where it is they are. Acts 17, speaking of Christ, Paul, he has appointed a day on which he, Jesus, will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Pardon me, the, the judge God, but by Christ. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Then there's 1 Timothy 4.1, and here's the merge. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. How can Christ have such a kingdom of God unless he is God the Son? This is all over the New Testament. It's inescapable if you read it in earnest. Verse 43, To him all the prophets witness that through his name, Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Amen. I believe in his name. My sins are paid for by somebody bigger, better, and eternal. They're gone. Jesus Christ, this is said to him, all the prophets witness. Not to Michael the angel. Not to Mary, a sinner like us. Not to Muhammad. Not to Buddha. Jesus only. To him the prophets bore witness. First John chapter 4, verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. 
All the prophets witness. The supreme witness is the Holy Spirit. And he will testify of me, Jesus said. But the prophets led it up to that point. Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's incredible. No one else has got this status. No one. No created being. Only the self-existent son has this status. The Jesus we pray to is God. And there is God the Father, there is God the Son, and there is God the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Not until Peter makes this word does the Holy Spirit then fall upon them. When, when the whole thing was, and I don't want to get ahead, we're finishing up now. The whole thing about um, your guilt, my guilt, being received in the presence of God brings the remission of sins. And this is going to cause the Holy Spirit to end the service like he's going to do right now. <laughs> the end of preaching, at least. Uh, incredible part of the message is that when we accept the sin that we have, which that audience did, the Holy Spirit would not have fallen on them, had in their heart, they said, well, this is a good sermon. I have to think about this. Well, you know, I know Jesus was a man. I don't buy it. The Bible's got problems. That was not taking place in the house of Cornelius. Those people were on the edge of their seats listening to every word out of Peter's mouth, and then the Holy Spirit took over. Incredible. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, because of what Jesus has done for us, it is honor to be able to share, to tell people about you, not only to benefit from what you've done for us, but to be used to invite others also. And now we come to the communion table, right out in public, no shame, making it clear. It is the Jesus of Nazareth that went to the cross and died for sinners and rose again. It is this Jesus whom we remember symbolically with the bread and the cup as we commune with you. This morning, if you are joining us at the table of Christ, but you've never confessed your sins, well, the table is not for you, but you're invited. You're invited to come to the table, but you must come as a sinner who repents to receive the remission of sins. You must say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your law. I ask you to forgive me, to be my Lord and my Savior. If you make that prayer, you come, the table is yours, because God says so. If you are a confessed believer, but you are involved in sin and you think it's okay, that it's not sin, that you're good enough, even though you may claim Christ, then... You've got to deal with that first. You have to go and clean that up in your heart before coming to the table. Those of us who come to the table, we struggle. We fight sin in our lives. But we know what God thinks of it. And we know what he thinks of us nonetheless. And now, Father, may you bless all of these things. Because only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.